before starting this episode, would like to give would like to give a trigger warning. In this episode, we discuss topics of rape and sexual assault. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. It is your girl Adar, and you're listening to the Digital Sisterhood podcast. At the beginning of the pandemic, back when we thought COVID was only going to be two weeks, I had come across this woman that just was so articulate and intentional and inspiring and just had, it's almost like she lived a hundred years, right? And I remember um, I was first introduced to Sister Angelica, or is popularly known as the Village Auntie, in this WhatsApp group that I was invited to during Ramadan. It was like a bunch of sisters that came together and wanted to benefit each other. Obviously because during this time we were having our first Ramadan in a pandemic and we all knew that Ramadan was going to feel a lot different. And so some of the ways that we tried to remedy that, remedy that was to start a group chat. And I remember the sister would organize different events and have different sisters come on and we would go on Zoom and we would, you know, do like a workshop or a webinar or some sort of talk. And um, and I remember the week that Sister Angelica, or I like to call her, his auntie came on. And she was talking about, and this is the first time I've ever seen her. I've never heard of her before that. She was talking about self-love. And she was talking about our religion in relation to it. And it was a way I've never seen somebody do it before, right? Whenever we go to lectures, we always hear about, like, the companions or the Prophet or the Sahabiyats or just different ways or, or even the Sira. But in this way, she was talking about identity, self-love in a way that was educational. And then she would use, obviously, the Sunnah and the prophetic the traditions to bridge everything together. And it was a way I've, I've never, like like a scene and I, I was so interested I was like I was like well this is really practical and inspiring and a, and, a, and a great way to look at ourselves and our bodies and our everything it was like resonating it was like hitting it was like really I was like who is this woman where'd she come from like I was genuinely perplexed I was like wow like I just felt like I knew her. She just made me feel like she was talking to me. And something about her feels so safe. So I followed her on Instagram. And ever since then, I've been keeping up with um, Auntie. And it only made sense that, you know, we invited her onto the podcast to share, you know, her with you guys. I've always been curious. Like, I know a Village Auntie is this huge internet persona. But I never really knew too much about her past. Who was Auntie before the village auntie. How did the village auntie come about? And this is what she had to say. So I am from the city of Detroit. And the Detroit of my youth was 99.99% black, which I think colored a lot of my upbringing and even the way that I am now. I was always comfortable being who I am as a black girl, I am the fourth of six children. I am my mother and father's first child. So my mother was in an abusive marriage. And when she went to the police station to seek out a restraining order against her first husband, the police officer who took the report is the man who ultimately became my father. They established a friendship and they got married later. Yeah, she always said it was not a love marriage, but she felt comfortable with him. But my father was an alcoholic, and I think that the trauma of working on the Detroit police force in the late 60s, early 70s just really got to him. He had a devastating motorcycle accident, and that really sort of changed the trajectory of our lives because my mother, who at the time was a graduate student, she started working full-time, and our lives changed considerably. Not abruptly, but over the course of, I would say, 10 years, our lives changed But I think, you know, looking back, I had a pretty traditional black Detroit middle class upbringing. You know, in my neighborhood, everybody on our street looked like me. Um, We got to play, you know, hand clap games and jump rope and we would stay out until the street lights came on. I was always a tall child, so people always thought that I was much older than I was, which worked to my advantage because I didn't get into a lot of like schoolhouse fights or anything. People kind of left me alone, but I was always very bookish. 
So I'm an introvert, and books were my friend from very early on. So I would take my mother's like biology textbooks and anatomy textbooks. She was working on her PhD in clinical psychology, and I would take all of her books, and I'd be like third grade, fourth grade, downstairs in the summertime reading books while the other girls on my street were, you know, playing with Barbies and jump roping and things. So I think those habits that I developed early on have stuck with me to this day. In a lot of ways, I'm still the same little girl who, you know, went to Parkman Elementary School and Taft Middle School and Renaissance High School. I'm still just as introverted as I was back then. Uh, because I had a social network built into my family. So there are six kids in my family, three girls, three boys. But I'm in the middle in terms of age. So there is a large age gap before me and then after me. So I spent a lot of time in a world of make-believe and imagination. And that helped me. It was a protective factor and it really aided me later on in life when I started to experience trauma. But I have to say that the place that I found the greatest sense of relief and respite was in the church. So we were a church-going family. We would wake up early every Sunday morning and find the best clothes that we could, and we would go to church. I was a junior usher. I wanted to grow up and be a Sunday school teacher and marry a minister. We would go out to eat after church service and then go back to church for evening service. Wednesday nights, we were there for Bible study. Friday nights, we were there. So we grew up in a very spiritual household, but not really religious. So my, my mother and father weren't very strict in the way that a lot of religious households were, but they really reinforced what I now know as Tawheed. I didn't know that word then but I now know it as Tawheed. Like we were really, we really knew the oneness of God. And we, I, I learned how to read by reading the Bible and memorizing the, the books of the Bible. So spirituality and religion has always been a big part of my life. And I remember the very first time that I saw a Muslim, I was in fourth grade and I was following my sister to her friend's house. And I saw these ladies walking down the street. I thought they were ghosts because they were wearing these big, black, billowy garments. I had no idea what they were, but it looked like they were floating. And where we lived was, was adjacent to Dearborn, which I don't know if it still is, but at the time it was home to the largest Arab population outside of the Middle East. And my sister's friend said, oh, those are Muslims. And I was like, well, what's a Muslim? <laughs> and I, I, never, I will never forget. Like, I can literally see the women in my head right now. Uh, so it's, it's interesting how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will, will place clues in your life that you don't realize until you look back on them. But I, I'll never forget it. And, and when we went to church the following day, I remember seeing one of the church mothers and she had on a black church hat and a black suit. And it made me think of these ladies that I saw walking down the street and they're, you know, big black chadors. But yeah, I mean, I just, I think my personality, anyone who's known me since I was younger will tell you that I'm literally the same person that I was when I was a child. I'm just taller and maybe have a little more money, maybe. Auntie went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. This is where she studied African-American and African studies. In college, she was basically Erica Badu before Erica Badu. <laughs> she basically was Dr. Omar before Dr. Omar. She was this outspoken woman that had all of these political perspectives and wasn't afraid of voicing her opinion. I think people knew me in college as being very outspoken about my blackness, very creative in the way that I dressed. I didn't have a lot of money, so I would shop at thrift stores. And I used to wear these monstrously high head wraps. It was just, it was it was a scene. I was that girl walking across campus with like a stick of incense in her mouth, a big head wrap, a crop top and really baggy jeans, a, a camouflage leather backpack. You know, I wasn't very much in your face and outspoken on campus. Like, you know, I was very nice. You know, people could sit and talk to me. But in class, like, I made it my business 
to give it to professors any chance I could. I sought out every professor with an African-sounding name and took their class. I think one semester I took 24 credits. I was... I was a scene. It was it was so it was so interesting. But I was I think I was searching for myself and my identity. Uh, I was still best friends with my high school best friend, and we you know we roomed together. But by the junior year of university, I wasn't living on campus anymore. It was too expensive, so I was commuting back and forth, and that's really when I think I started to become a lot calmer. I didn't feel like I needed to perform my blackness as much. It, 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 there's something about there's something to say about being thrown on a campus with 35,000 students, the majority of whom are white, a lot of whom are very privileged, and you're a black girl from Northwest Detroit, and you you know you don't know if you're gonna have five dollars to buy a meal at the Michigan Union. There's there's something about that that makes you either want to conform or rebel, and I definitely leaned on the side of rebellion. The first up-close interaction of Islam that Auntie had was through her boyfriend. There was a moment actually in the car where she got really annoyed by something he kept saying over and over again. When we started dating, he was a part of a metaphysical, a group that studied metaphysics. So it wasn't really a Muslim group. It was like a proto-Islamic movement. So, you know, they would take on Muslim names, they would use Arabic greetings with each other. They would use parts of the Quran, but they would sort of refashion them into lessons on like manifestation and abundance and clarity. And it just seemed very odd and very um, sort of makeshift. So I remember we were driving in his car. He had a green 1995 Monte Carlo, like a very old school classic car. We were playing some hip-hop cassette tape or something, just totally in our our bag. Like, we'd be very much in style right now with this whole late 90s resurgence. But <laughs> we were driving, and he said something about the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And I was like, why do you have to say peace upon him? You should be saying peace upon Jesus. You used to be in the church. You used to do this. And I was admonishing him, and he didn't really say anything. He just kind of listened. And he said, one day you'll know. One day you'll see what I see. And I think in my mind, I said, well, I, you're, you're going to be the one who's going to see. I'm not going to see. You're going to see. <laughs> I'm going to show you. You know, because I was still in my, like, rebellious college, college years. And he was very calm. Like, his personality was a lot calmer than mine was. But what I felt was that the more engaged that he got with this group, the more he seemed to pick up some elements of cultural Islam mm -hmm. that bothered me. So I remember one day we had an argument and he came home and he threw some fabric on the floor. We were living together at that time. And I was like, what is this? I picked it up. It was heavy. He said, you're going to make one of those things that the Muslim ladies wear, where you cover your face and that'll teach you to be quiet. Wow. Wow. So, yeah, and and I didn't really know what to say, but immediately my mind went back to those women that I had seen on the street when I was little. And they hadn't they didn't wear anything to cover their face, but it seemed like he was trying to use Islam to silence me. Mm. And something in me said that that's not really how it goes. So I was I was studying it so that I could disprove Islam and I could also show how he was applying it wrong. So even though I didn't believe at that time that Islam was the proper path, I also knew that the way that he was applying it wasn't correct. So when he made that comment, like when he said to you, like, you need to make this thing that the the Muslim women wear that so you can stop talking. Like I, I'm curious to know what happened after that. Did you just say no? I'm not. I'm not gonna do that. And it, it, did it cause friction, or was it kind of like you you just went back and forth for a while? I think at first I didn't know what to say. So there was definitely a power imbalance in the relationship because at at that time, even though I was rebellious in terms of my political thought. I did not have a lot of agency when it came to myself and my body. I had gone through, you know, a lot of trauma growing up in the house of a father who was an alcoholic. And then my, my parents got divorced when I was a teenager. And my mother got into a relationship with a man who was an active substance abuser. 
So I had learned early on that my voice was appropriate for certain places, but not when it came to men. So I was afraid to really challenge him. But I said in that in my mind when he said that about using the fabric that I will never, like I will never use this fabric to cover, you know, and to shield my mouth, to shield the words. And the good thing is that I had been exposed in university to Muslim women who were just as outspoken as I was in, in university. Like they were just as outspoken in lectures and discussion sections. So that I knew that he was wrong, but I was afraid to tell him that he was wrong. And I felt like I needed to arm myself with as much knowledge as I could so that when the day came and I did find my voice, I would have something to back me up. That day never came because we wound up breaking up for a totally different reason. But I did feel as if I had to be armed because I wasn't I wasn't taught how to voice my opinion to men that I was in intimate relationships with, whether that was a father or a boyfriend. Auntie had seen in university Muslim women who were expressing their political opinion, who were boisterous, that weren't keeping quiet. And here he was telling her everything and to stay quiet. And it, it just wasn't adding up. I was majoring in African-American and African studies, and we came across a unit where we were talking about Nigeria. And the professor talked about the large Muslim population that existed in Nigeria. Now, I have to go back a bit. The Nation of Islam was started in the city of Detroit. So I knew that there were black Muslims, and I knew that there were Muslims who wore black, like the ladies in Dearborn. But to me, they were two totally different groups of people. The women who wore black, they went to a mosque and they spoke Arabic. The black Muslims wore bow ties and they sold newspapers and fruit at intersections when I left high school. I never integrated the two, and I didn't realize that there were African people who were actually Muslim. And that set me about on a spiritual journey that coincided with a big debacle that happened in my home church. I still don't know all of the details, but there was a crisis of leadership. There were people who were leaving the church. My mother stopped going to the church for a while. So I really felt kind of like unmoored. I didn't really have a foundation. So I set out to search. And, you know, I studied about the the Muslim community in Nigeria. I think I tried my hand at Rastafarianism one summer. I took a class on Hinduism. I took a class on Judaism. And I just kept coming back to Nigeria. I kept coming back to the image of the women in black because Islam just seemed so mysterious to me. I still considered myself a staunch Christian, even though I was not going to church. I was not going to Bible study. I wasn't even really reading my Bible, but I still prayed and said, you know, in Jesus' name when I said grace. I wanted to prove to him that Jesus was the reason for the season. So I started studying Islam so that I could disprove it. I read everything that I could about Islam. What were the five pillars? What were the articles of faith? You know, why did I think these, you know, black Muslims from Detroit were different from the, the Muslims in Nigeria? Why did the women wear the black chadors that they wore? And as I started getting into the study of Islam, I really started to see that the beliefs in the religion aligned with the way that my mother had raised me. They aligned with, you know, my belief in one God. I never believed in the Trinity in the way that a lot of Christians do. I always saw Jesus as a messenger and not as the literal son of God. I had no problem with the reason why women covered and I actually found it to be quite beautiful. So the MSA at University of Michigan, they had like Islam Awareness Week. In hindsight, I know that's what it was. I didn't know what that that's what it was at the time. But there were these people who were like wrapped up and they were singing. Now I know they were actually reciting Quran in the Michigan Union and I didn't know what they were doing. And one day I saw them making salah and I was just I was transfixed. I, I could not understand what was happening. I thought it was so beautiful and just so calming to see them pray in that way. Uh, so I watched them make salah, and then I, you know, went about my day. I, you know, got food, went to the bookstore, and went to class. A few months later, I was dealing with something that was very traumatic, and I felt like I needed to pray. 
And the first thing that I did was I went into sujood and prayed. I had never prayed like that before. We didn't pray like that in church. There was nothing in my upbringing that, you know, it taught me to pray with my head to the ground, but it was just instinct. The very first thing that I did was went into sujood and prayed. And when I when I came out of it and I stopped praying, I was like, why did you do that? Like wh- where did that where did that come from? It just felt so natural and it felt so real and I I felt connected for the first time in a way that I hadn't felt connected before. And I think after that, that's when I began to read Quran and read different research about Islam in a different light, like in a new light. It felt like this was the lifeline that I had been looking for. After many years of, of studying Islam, finally, in August of 1998, Auntie finally decided to take her shahada. I think I just woke up one day and I said, what are you waiting for? Like what, how many more books can you read? How many more hours can you spend in the computer lab? Because back then people didn't have the internet on their phone. Like you had to go to the computer lab and sign in. And I would sit for hours and hours just pouring over everything I could find on the internet. And I remember just waking up one day and saying, okay, Angelica, it's time to either jump off the cliff or get pushed off. I needed that spiritual foundation in my life. So I woke up, I think it was on a Saturday, and I called my friend and I said, okay, I'm ready to take my shahada. And she said, okay, well, I want you to do it in front of a sheikh, in front of, you know, someone who is knowledgeable and, you know, we want to make this an event. And the next day she set it up and I, I remember exactly what I was wearing. I was wearing a, like one part of a, an Indian, um, like shalwar kameez set. It had short sleeves. And I took one of my Erica Badu head wraps. It was white chiffon with lace on the ends. It was literally six feet long. And I draped it over my head and I had on a pair of white nylon cargo pants underneath. And I went to take my shahada with a, a sheikh from Senegal. And I just remember sitting there panicking like what are you doing like I all of that confidence that I had the day before kind of melted away but as soon as the shake came into the room it just all of my fear dissipated and I just I just did it I didn't and I didn't even tell anybody that I was taking my shahada except for the sister who had been helping me with dawa over the the past few years and I kept it a secret for for a while but it was just there was a sense of resolve I think that entered my heart and I just woke up and said you know what it's time to do it it had been four years by that time and I just knew it was time to to just go ahead and say it auntie when she accepted Islam it was a secret for a long time and she hadn't told her, her, her mother or her family members. She was just, you know, getting a hang of things until there was a moment where her mother caught her saying, Alhamdulillah, on the phone. I finished the conversation. My mother was outside sitting at like a patio table in the backyard. And I went outside and I said, Mom, I have something to tell you. And she said, what is it? I said, well... I'm a Muslim. And she didn't say anything for a long time. And then she said, is that why you burn incense all the time? I said, no, (laughs) I burn incense. (laughs) I said, I burn incense because I like the smell. And she said, so you don't believe in Jesus anymore? I said, no, we believe that Jesus is the son of Mary, the son of Maryam. And we believe that he is one of the greatest prophets that Allah sent. And she just looked at me and she didn't say anything. And she didn't say anything to me for the next three weeks. We were living in the same house. She, it's like I became invisible to her. She completely ignored me. Uh, she wouldn't acknowledge my presence. She just was, later on she told me that she felt as if I had like slapped her in the face because she felt Not that Islam was wrong, but she felt that me becoming a Muslim meant that I was turning my back on the ways that she had raised me, not realizing that she had taught me spiritual fortitude and the the ability to evolve from, 
you know, what you were taught as a child and to become something new because she had done the same thing. So it wasn't really a refutation of the way that she had raised me. It was an affirmation of the resilience that she had built in me from a very young child. But at the at the time, she just she couldn't process it. She was not willing to acknowledge it. And it's actually I told her in 1998 and it wasn't until I got married in 2004 that she ever openly acknowledged that I was a Muslim in public. Wow. She wore a hijab to my wedding. Oh. When I told her that I was getting married, she said, well, what do I wear? I said, well, it's going to be at the masjid, so just wear something, you know, appropriate. You know, don't wear, like, short sleeves if possible, but you're my mother. They know you're Christian. You'll be fine. And she showed up in a turquoise long-sleeve pantsuit and the prettiest turquoise beaded hijab that she would not let me have afterwards. And she was she was proud to, to be there. And now she's become one of my like biggest supporters uh, when it comes to, to being a Muslim. She will correct people if they try to, you know, say something about the way that I dress. Um, every uh, Thanksgiving, they make sure that we have food that we can eat. They come over for Eid. It's just, it's big. It, I'm still the only Muslim in my family, but my mother has come a long way. We've come, we've come a long way since I, I first told her that I was a Muslim. Auntie and her mother had a very parallel experience, both in their experience and journey to, you know, spirituality and their, their, their expression of it, as well as their relationship with men. As a child, I thought I had a very close relationship with my mother like my mother to me was a giant I wanted nothing more than to be just like her I watched my mother you know in graduate school she would take me when she was getting her master's degree she'd take me to classes with her I'd go to work with her she worked in uh, substance abuse and behavioral health so I really modeled myself after my mother as, as much as I could and she was always just a very elegant woman and she was very feminine like my mother would sit around the house in a black sheer caftan with like you know fuzzy little trimmings around the wrist we had a blue velvet sofa and I like the earliest embedded memory of my mother is her sitting on a a blue velvet easy chair with this black sheer kimono like garment on smoking a cigarette out of a filter and drinking milk with ice cubes out of a wine glass. Like that image is is just my mother. She's just a woman. She's always been her own woman. And she went on a spiritual journey of her own. My great-grandmother who raised my mother for, for part of her life was um, a staunch Seventh-day Adventist. And my mother steered away from that church community and that was very difficult for her. So even my journey to Islam in a lot of ways mirrors the way that my mother, I won't say turned her back on, but evolved from the spiritual traditions of her youth. But my mother has always had a troubled relationship with men. Her father, my grandfather, was, I guess the best way to say it in modern day parlance would be like a womanizer. But he had multiple families across the United States. My mother is 75, and she's still finding brothers and sisters that she didn't know that she had. But she loved her father dearly. Like, she, I never got to meet my grandfather, but she would just regale us with stories about, you know, how he would, you know, say her name and how he would, you know, teach her things and how he would spend time with her. But he had simultaneous families, like, literally all over the United States. So I feel like my mother has always fought for her father's love through the relationships that she's had with men. And that had a a big impact on me because although I could see the good in everything that my mother was, her fashion sense, you know, her brilliance, her political commentary, you know, her cooking, everything was just so magical about my mother. The one area that I did not want to emulate was her approach to romantic relationships. So that had a big effect on me because I tried as much as possible to do the exact opposite of the things that she did because I love my father. I lost my father when I was 16. He was just the funniest person you'll ever meet. 
He could cook like somebody's grandmother, but he was a troubled man. And I could never understand why my mother would just not leave. So that had such a big impact on me because I could see how my mother didn't have a voice. And even in me, you know, resisting this image of of my mother as this woman in very troubled relationships, I wound up taking on that aspect of her personality because I, I didn't find my voice for a very, very long time. So I think part of it was learned behavior and for, part of it was just, you know, absorbing the trauma that existed within our family. But the fact that it the trauma existed alongside joy made it possible for the, the trauma to, to sort of be invisibilized over the years. I think for a long time it made me not want to be in a relationship. I used to tell people all the time, I'm never getting married. I'm never having children. I'm just going to travel the world and teach dance and just live my life and be free because I did not want, I didn't want that life for myself. But I found that when I did get into a relationship, I could only do what I saw. I could only pattern what I knew. And that was the man is always right. You always have to be the first one to apologize. You have to make sure that you're pretty. You have to make sure that you cook well. And those were the lessons that I brought into relationships, even though I didn't want to be like my mother was in relationships. That was all that I knew. So that that was what I acted out in every relationship that I entered into until I recognized the pattern in myself and I stopped it. Auntie, like many of us, was done with men. Definitely wasn't trying to talk to no man um, and and was OK with being alone. I was okay with doing what she loves and living somewhere and just living her life that way. Um, But her best friend sought out to set her up on a blind date. And she met a man that changed her view of men forever. So I I was friends with a Somali sister named Ferdos. And we met at a community meeting for the Somali Association of Arizona it's a funny story. We were sitting, we were sitting in a community meeting, and I was invited as a person who would potentially come on the advisory board for the Somali Association. So they wanted to get non-Somalis who could, you know, come in and just offer input. They wanted to diversify their their pool of advisors. So I was at the very first meeting, and they were talking about this young Somali girl. I think she was like in middle school who had beat up one of the boys in the community. And there were all of these men in the room talking about like, oh, the beloved, this is terrible. Look at what this country is doing to our girls. And then Fardos comes in. The only empty seat is next to me. She comes in and she's listening to these men just go on and on and on. The boy had been harassing the girl for months. And apparently she turned around and like punched him in the mouth and like he got a bloody nose or something. And so they were just all up in arms, not about the boys bullying, but about what the girl had done to basically defend herself. And I'll never forget, Fardos said it only loud enough so that I could hear. She said, good for her. I hope she got a good licking in. And I looked at her and she looked at me and I said, we're going to be friends. And we became friends. <laughs> um, and she, when she found out that I wasn't married, I was 28 at the time. She found out that I wasn't married. She made it her business to find me a husband. So she invited me over to her house and invited her husband's best friend, Mohammed, to come to the house. And he was nice. She told me that he was tall. He's not tall. He's three inches shorter than me. Um, she told me that like he was very outgoing, he's very shy, but we had just a lovely conversation and there was a comfort level that I felt with him that I hadn't felt with any other man in my life. And once dinner was done, he said his goodbyes and he left. And then like maybe 20 minutes later, the phone rings at Fardos's house and she hands me the phone and it was Muhammad. And he said, I just want to ask you one question. And I said, this man better not ask me for my phone number because the answer is absolutely no. I was so against relationships, but he said, he said, do you want to get married one day? And I said, maybe. Why? He said, because I'm looking for a wife. I'm only interested in talking to you if you are interested in being a relationship I think that, you know, this is something that could be beautiful. And I wanted to know if it would be possible for me to get your phone number so that I could call you. And there was just something very intentional about like what he he asserted, what he was looking for. 
he was very intentional about like asking me, can we continue to communicate? And I don't think that I had ever been spoken to as respectfully by any man before then. And so I, you know, of course, in true Angelica fashion, I said, well, I have a question for you. And he said, what? I said, do you have a green card? <laughs> he just started laughing because he's from Ghana. And, you know, I had I had dated a guy briefly who would, you know, wound up telling me that he only wanted me for a green card. And when I asked him, did he have a green card? Yeah, he just started laughing. And he said, I don't have a green card. I have a passport. I said, OK, then you can have my phone number. <laughs> So I, I think I think my relationship with my husband, he, and he's always just been very intentional, like literally from the first day that we met and how he communicates with me, um, how he just establishes what what he is looking for, what he wants, his boundaries, respecting my boundaries. That really shifted how I look at men because his pattern was so different. And then when I met his father, his father is the same way. They, they have a combination of um, strength and gentleness that I had never witnessed before in a man. So I think it's not one experience, but I think my marriage is the defining relationship that really shifted how I felt about the men in my life. So I asked Auntie how she became the village auntie. How did the road pave her to be this this person, this uh, leader, this person that advocates for women and women's body and was a beacon of knowledge and teaching. How did you get here? So I think there were there were two defining experiences that that led me down this path. And you know, remember I, I was I was eight, nine years old, reading anatomy and physiology textbooks and biology textbooks. So I, I grew up in a fairly sex-positive household in that conversations around the body and sexuality were not ones that were shunned by my mother. So I remember being a teenager and experiencing really bad menstrual cramps and being able to go to my mother and her basically explaining to me what cramps were and, you know, why you have to make sure that you eat certain foods and, you know, using a heating pad and making sure that you you rest and are gentle with your body during that time. So uh, sex, sex education was not something that we shied away from in our house. So I think that that was a protective factor for the work that I do. But it's interesting. I was studying Islam, and it was I took my shahada in August of 1998. And in April of 1998, we took a caravan from Detroit down to Cincinnati. I was doing African dance at that time, and we wanted to go to a dance conference. There was a teacher there who's very popular. I love her so much, and I wanted to take her class. So I'm taking her class and I started having really, really bad cramps as if my, you know, my period was going to start. But I knew it wasn't time for my period, but it literally felt like someone had a knife to my womb as I went up and down the floor doing these dance steps. When the class ended, she came over to me and said, you know, I, I noticed that you're holding your side. I said, yeah, I'm having really bad cramps. She said, you need to take a lapa. A lapa is the, the wrap skirt that we wear when we're dancing. She said, you need to take a lapa and tie it around your waist tightly when you're dancing. And there's a tea that you should get called kinklyba tea. You should drink that. It'll help. And I remember looking at her like, ma'am, I know you're an excellent dancer. I know you can sing and you can do some choreography. What I do not know you as is a gynecologist. Like, I, you are not a medical professional. Now, the, these are the thoughts that went through my head because she's old enough to be my mother. I was not going to dare let those words come out of my mouth, right? I wasn't going to let this, you know, tell this Senegalese woman, like, mind your business. But I, I remember what she said, and I listened. <laughs> so a couple weeks later... I have my annual well woman exam and the doctor told me, you know, Angelica, I know you do a lot of strenuous physical activity. You might want to wear like a girdle or some kind of restrictive garment that can, you know, sort of um, support your your 
pelvic area in your lower abdomen because you have an inverted uterus. It means your uterus is tipped to the back. So, you know, it's kind of floating around in there and, you know, you might want to have some support. And I know you don't like to take traditional medicine. So if there are some herbs or like herbal teas that you can take, feel free to use that if that's going to help to tone your womb. So the doctor basically told me the exact same thing that the dance teacher told me. And I, yeah, she was right. I went home and I called her and I'm like, how did you know? And she said, Angelica, I'm a woman who knows myself and a woman who knows herself can teach other women to know themselves. And and that began to this day. Like she's someone that I can reach out to when I have, you know, any reproductive health issues, when I have spiritual health issues, because she's a Muslim. I was not yet a Muslim. I was, you know, five months away from taking my Shahada. But she has, you know, she's remained a teacher and she really introduced me to the world of West African traditional healing modalities, uh, women's medicines, the ways that we can use like somatic therapy. She wouldn't call it that, but basically movement therapy to heal ourselves. And that that's what set me down the path of researching and learning what are the ways that my West African ancestors would have healed these things that modern medicine says you need a pill, pill for. You know, what is kinkley bati? And I've come to find that it's like this miracle leaf that you can use for so many things. So that was the, that was the first experience that, that really led me down the path of learning uh, the things that form the basis of my work. And then later on that same summer, I took my shahada in August, August 23rd, 1998. And yeah, it's coming up. <laughs> it's coming up soon. Um, there's a big festival that happens in Detroit every summer. It's usually at the end of the summer. It's called the African World Festival. And you have vendors who come from all over the United States. They sell bees. They sell African food. They sell textiles, fabrics. It's just a big explosion of cultures like Africa, the entire continent of Africa would come to Hart Plaza in downtown Detroit. So I would go every year. And one of the big events that happens every year are these spontaneous dance circles that would pop up. So I was, you know, dancing regularly and we would just be waiting for the drummers to show up so that we could form like this, you know, dance circle and people could get out in the middle and, you know, do solos and somebody would come and break dance and somebody would be do, doing like martial arts or acrobatics. It was just this big, joyous community celebration. So we were in uh, one of the far ends of the festival and there was a brother who was playing sabar drums. Now, sabar drums are not the, the typical um, drum that you play with the hand that's that's very popular in, in you know West African dance communities in the U.S. Sabar is played with a stick and a hand. It's, it has a very distinct sound, and it's actually my favorite drum, and it's my favorite style of dance. So he's playing, and then a couple of the other Senegalese vendors join in, and they start playing. So what do I do? I'm with my friend, who's also a sabar dancer. We drop our stuff, and we start dancing. We're just going for it. And, like, the women are, like, you know, they're they're rooting us on. Wow, wow, you have to all go. It's just so great. So we stop dancing, and this really tall, slim brother with, like, a big, wide smile, he comes over. And he starts speaking to me in Wolof. I don't really understand anything. You know, he says, Nangadef. I say, Mangi Firek. That's all I really know. Uh, and then I said, well, I'm not Senegalese. You have to speak to me in English. He introduces himself and asks, like, how, how we learned how to do this dance. And we tell him that you know, we're students of African dance. And, you know, he thanks us for, you know, bringing a bit of home to the festival. And we leave. The festival is on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So that was on Friday. And we went back to the festival the following day. And, of course, you know, we made our rounds and we went by and we waved and said hi to him. And before we left, we told him that there was an African dance class that was happening just a few miles down the road. And if he had time on Sunday, he should come by and drum. And he did. He wound up coming uh, to drum and, you know, people loved him. He's very nice, just very kind brother, very quiet, almost shy. And um, he stayed in Detroit for the week after the festival, as a lot of vendors did. If they didn't sell all of their wares, 
and they were there from out of town, they will often stay behind and, you know, try to sell things maybe to local stores, local dance companies, local art galleries. So he had been planning to go back to Atlanta, but he said he was going to stay. He called me up one day and said that um, there was a gig, uh, an African dance performance that they needed another dancer for and asked if I would be willing to come. And I said, sure, because at that point I was looking for any opportunity to, you know, explore my 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 performance skills and, you know, just any opportunity I could get to dance. I was looking for it. And the performance was taking place in Ann Arbor, which is about 45 minutes outside of Detroit. And I didn't have a license, so I had to drive with this drummer and some of the other drummers from Ann Arbor. There were a bunch of white guys, like hippies. And I found out that the performance wasn't until the following day. So we were going to have to spend the night. And I got a little nervous because I was the only woman in the car. And I'm like, well, well, where am I going to sleep? Where are we going to spend the night? We wound up going to the home of one of the, the white drummers, his girlfriend. So I felt comfortable that there was another woman there. And I was given my own room to sleep in, which also made me feel very comfortable. And I'll never forget, I did not bring any clothes other than the clothes that I was going to perform in. So I was wearing this orange and white, like chiffon, gauzy pantsuit and caftan. It was it was beautiful. And I said, okay, well, this is, you know, this is comfortable enough for me to sleep in. And I um, laid down on the bed, which actually wasn't a bed. It was a futon. It was kind of hard. It was low to the ground, but, you know, I managed it. There was, there was some kind of like light coming from outside. So it took me a while to fall asleep. And just after I had fallen asleep, I could hear that someone had come into the room and it was the drummer. And I said, is everything okay? Like, you know, what's going on? I was kind of like, in a state of semi-consciousness and he just got on top of me and held me down and he raped me and I remember not really understanding exactly what was happening as it was happening and I can remember completely dissociating from my body in that moment it was as if you know how in movies like when a person dies, their spirit sort of floats up and they look down at themselves. That's how I was looking at my body. And, you know, he was holding me down with so much force. He was very thin. And I remember thinking, I can't believe how strong he is. And he finished. He got up and he left. It took a while for me for it to really register what had just happened. And I said, I have to, I have to get out of here. I went out into the living area and of course, like all of the drummers were asleep. There was a fire going. I didn't see him. I knew that he had, he was somewhere in the house. So I went back into the room and I locked the door and I waited until morning. And I went to one of the other drummers who had, you know, he would come down to our classes in Detroit every now and then. And I you know, pulled him to the side and said, I need to go. He said, well, Angelica, the performance is not until such and such a time. I said, I need to go right now. I need somebody to take me home right now. So he wasn't able to do it because he had a performance. He found someone. I don't even remember who it was. He found someone to drive me home. And that experience took me about... So that happened in 1998. It wasn't until 2016 that I was able to use the word rape for what I had experienced. Everything that I had learned in my childhood had prepared me to silence my voice as a woman, and it had prepared me to offer my mind, my body, and my soul to a man. I wasn't allowed to speak when I needed to. Uh, and my body felt like it wasn't my own. So I didn't know what was happening to me when I was violated. And I was working with the Arizona Coalition to End Sexual and Domestic Violence as an advisor for their survivors group. And these women were sharing their stories. And I remember having this visceral reaction. And I said, I'm a survivor. Like, I've this has happened to me. This, what happened to me was it was rape. 
And it was at that moment that I began the process of healing because I think between 98 and 2016, I had buried that experience. The only person that I told about it was my best friend at the time. She said, you know, do you want to call the police? Is there, you know, do you want to get an authority? I said, no, because I didn't fight back. I didn't, you know, this was a person that I knew. I didn't know him very well. I didn't really understand the scale of sexual assault and, and, and what it meant and that it wasn't my fault. I had been taught by my community, by my culture, by my church family, um, that it was shameful what happened to me and that I should be shamed for it. And I remember going back to dance class and people asking where the drummer had gone and finding out that he had gone back home um, to Atlanta. And one of the women in the class said, oh, he sure did like you. I noticed when you would come across the floor, he would drum extra hard. And I remember that just feeling like this piercing sting because it wasn't something that I could share with them about the experience. So um, I think the first experience and the, the and it's interesting that both defining experiences revolve around dance and they revolve around um, people from a culture that I love so much. But I think the, the first experience taught me how to build knowledge. It taught me how to build a base and foundation for the work that I'm in. And the second experience taught me how to heal. It taught me how to repair. And it, I feel like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala put me in that position. It was two weeks after I took my shahada that this happened to me. The man who violated me was a Muslim. But at no point did I ever vilify Islam. At no point did I ever question Allah. At no point did I ever question my decision to become a Muslim. It's like everything that happened to me that night could have taken me away from the fold of Islam. But because I didn't share it with people, because I kept it to myself, I, I didn't give people my words. I gave all my words to Allah. So I would go down in sujood and I would just make dua and say, Allah, you know, help me to heal from this. Help me to, to understand what's going on. I still wasn't able to call it rape, but I leaned into my faith. I leaned into Islam, not away from Islam. And I really think that's what saved me. And it's, it's so, subhanAllah, when I think about just the timeline of events and how Allah knew that I needed Islam to take me through this period of time of confusion, of pain, of hurt and trauma. It, it really feels like the work that I do now has brought me full circle because I'm now I'm able to make sense of all of those things that happened to me in the past. So people on the internet, you know, they think, we think we know the lives of the people that we interact with, especially on social media. We see a very curated version of someone else's reality. But people have lives. They have lived experiences. And I'll, I'll have people who see my kids. They you know, might see a snippet or two of my husband. You know, they know I have this thriving business and a job and I you know, wear bright lipstick and sparkly abayas. And they look at my life and say, well, Sister Angelica, you don't understand. And in my heart, I'm thinking like, but I do, like, I do. I I have a past. My my work is not just based on like certification classes and books that I've read. What I do, the majority of what I do is really based on my lived experience and how I was able to make a life out of that pain, out of that trauma, out of the tragedies that have happened to me. It's That's why I'm so passionate about helping women to see the best version of themselves because even when I was at my lowest, I knew that there was a possibility for more. Yeah. I knew that that Allah did not take me into a valley just to leave me there. Sometimes I didn't know how I was going to get out of it, yeah. but I knew I knew that there was a way. And for me, Islam, Islam was my path. So at the Digital Sisterhood, we've gotten tons and tons of emails uh, from sisters um, in response to Sabrine's episode about sexual violence. And the one question that keeps coming up is, how do I heal after a traumatic, that traumatic experience? And so I wanted to ask Auntie that question. How did she heal or where did her healing begin? And this is what she had to say. 
Well, I knew that I did not want him to take dance away from me because that was the one space where I felt completely at home in my body. I was very skinny, very tall, very awkward, but on the dance floor, I could be a crane. I could be a swan. Like I could be beautiful. I I took to African dance as if it, I had been doing it my whole life and I did not want him to take that away from me. So I leaned into those spaces where I could dance and learn and perform. And that community, that dance community gave me my own village aunties. I, I was able to come into contact with women who I could model myself after, women who I could go to for advice. Even if I didn't tell them about what happened to me, I found a supportive community of women who could be soft places for me to rest. I also started to learn more about the names of Allah and how Allah is so much bigger than what we could ever imagine. I learned more about Tawheed and Taqwa and Tawakkul, like what it meant to to not only know that there is a God, but also to rely on the strength of that creator to to take you through any and everything. I don't think that there was a, a specific class or a specific space, but I would spend a lot of time alone just thinking and just literally talking out loud and having conversations um, with myself about you know, who I wanted to be, what I wanted to do. I would, you know, lock myself in my apartment from Friday night when I got off of work until Monday morning when I had to go back into the office and I would sit in long periods of silence. And just I would allow myself to feel whatever it was that I was feeling. It was very painful. It was very difficult. But each time I did it, I felt like I got stronger and stronger. So I think having a community of people that I could rely on, learning more about my faith and just experiencing the magnitude and awe um, of Allah's magnificence and just leaning into that knowledge that as bad as I feel, there is a greater force and a greater entity that's got my back. That, that I think that really helped me to get out of the depths. Like, what would you say to someone who's experienced something like that right now? Like right now, and they haven't said the word. They haven't like really like discussed what happened to them. And they're living in a space right now where they just don't know where to go. Like they just are, they just feel like they just want to weather away. Like, what would you say to them? I think the first thing that I would say is, so the warmth that that you feel from me, where does warmth come from? It comes from fire, right? it's, It's challenge, it's conflict that can build you up. It can tear you down, but it can also build you up. So I think the first thing that I would tell someone is to acknowledge it to yourself first. You don't owe anybody your story. You don't have to share it with anybody, but you do have to be honest with yourself and name whatever it is that you're feeling, anger, grief, trauma, resentment, pain, owning it and accepting that it is something that happened to you, but it is is not you. I think that's the first step towards healing because I have one story, but we all have a story. Like everybody has something that has happened to them. I mean, hello, we're 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 on the heels of a global state of trauma for the last two years with with COVID. So, um, I think owning your truth and accepting it and not allowing other people to weaponize it against you. Audrey Lord has a quote that I won't even try to say um, verbatim, but it it basically. Is, you know, when you accept things about yourself, other people can't weaponize it against you. So when you own your story, you own whatever it is you have experienced it, nobody can use it to harm you. And that's really what we're trying to protect ourselves from when we when we don't admit how we're feeling, when we don't give a name to what we have experienced. It it really is rooted in fear. We don't we don't want to be hurt again. We're afraid to be hurt again. But when you can name it and claim it, even if you just keep it to yourself, that can be the most powerful act. 
You know, nowadays when people talk to you about courtship and love, they say, oh, you have to find your soulmate. Your soulmate can be your best friend. Your soulmate can be your cousin. Your soulmate can be your actual sister. Your soulmate does not have to be a romantic partner. It's the person that allows you to be a full version of yourself and can accept you flaws and all. And I have found that type of genuine and authentic love with my sisters. Yes, I have it with my husband, but I had it with my sisters first. You know, sisterhood taught me how to build platonic, intimate, vulnerable, authentic relationships. And sisterhood is so important because everything in our modern society puts women at competition with each other, right? It puts women, you know, you have to be the prettiest, you have to be the smartest, you have to make the most money, your hip-waist ratio has to be this, your hair has to be this. And it's all built on, you know, pitting women's insecurities against each other. But when you engage in sisterhood, you're able to just accept each other how you come. You know, I think sisterhood is so important now because women, we suffer so much from systems of power control and domination that want us to weaken our light, that want us to weaken our strength and our power because women are absolutely powerful and we're more powerful in numbers. So I think sisterhood is important because it helps us to unlock our individual, but also our collective potential. And I feel like communities, institutions, families, cultures, societies, we do so much better when we have a strong base of sisterhood. That That is, if you look at, you know, civilizations, great civilizations from history, uh, part of the reasons why they are so great is because you have these women who work together in community to build foundations and pillars. And that's that to me is what sisterhood is, is that connective life force amongst women that allows us all to be great. There was an Instagram Live that went viral this actually March of last year. If you remember, you were talking about self-love. Do you remember that? So, yeah, so when I teach about self-love, I always teach about, I call it a law-centered self-love. Mm. And it's really removing the nafs and the ego and placing Allah at the center. A lot of the self-help movement is about telling you you're magical, you're wondrous, you're beautiful, you're brilliant, you're creative. But you're none of those things without Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala imbuing you with those values and those traits. And you know, Allah-centered self-love makes people understand that you're not the only person who's great. There are other people who are also great. Mm. So when we when we talk about, you know, building ourselves up, it can't be at the expense of someone else. We can't build ourselves up and tear someone down at the same time. And we also can't build ourselves up without forgetting our source, and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I think in that video, that was the the beginnings of me crystallizing that as a concept, which has really become a foundation in the classes, it's mm-hmm. it's putting a lot at the center and loving yourself, even on days when you don't like yourself, when you look in the mirror and you don't feel beautiful, you don't feel attractive, but you love yourself and you respect yourself as a creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's an essence and actualization of taqwa and tawakkul. It's it's understanding that, you know, I, I, I'm conscious that there is a creator that created me in this specific shape, in this specific form, at this specific time, and I honor myself as a creator creation of Allah, not because I'm great, but because Allah created me. He allowed me to exist. Allah does not make mistakes. Allah is beautiful and he loves all things that are beautiful. So I have to include myself as a part of that. So it's a way of receiving validation internally rather than seeking external validation from people, which is, you know, what a lot of people are on social media for. So I think I got on that live because I I think I remember recording it and I was taking a nap and I woke up and I said, somebody needs to hear this. And I jumped on and I recorded it. And someone screen recorded it. And Girl. it's out there in the ether somewhere. And guess what? I, 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 you know what? I, there, was some, there was something I wanted to say in response, but we didn't have a sentencing for that back then. But now we do. And if I would have heard that live now, I would have said, and that's on Rabbil Alameen. <laughs> that's, on, that's a slogan we got going on. Instead of that's on period, we say that's on Rabbil Alameen. <laughs> And um, what piece of advice would you give to inspiring dancers out there? I would love everybody to be involved with dancing. Dancing is like a healing. Yes, it's a healing process. 
dancing is like living, like in flying without wings, because dancing will heal you. That's for sure. It heals me. <laughs> well, here you have it, guys. We have Maribas here, Amado, with uh, Rhythmatics TV. Later. I, I just wanted to say it's a really, really heavy time for Muslims. Um, we see what's going on in Lebanon. We see what's going on in Afghanistan. We see what's going on everywhere. And the Muslims are really going through it. Um, I just want to remind the listeners to just take a moment. It's Friday. Um, and to make dua for the Ummah. May Allah protect all the Muslims who are being oppressed. May Allah aid them and may Allah liberate them and grant them all those who have passed the highest level of Jannah. This episode is brought to you by Beautiful Light Studios. I love to give a shout out to my girl, Muna Shukumar, for producing this yet again, because she does it every week, helping produce this beautiful episode. Shout out to you, Muna. Um, and yeah, I hope that some of you have joined Patreon because I hate, you know, coming for you guys. No, I'm kidding. If you're interested in joining our membership, you can go on our website at com and join our membership and support this podcast. Um, we also have a merch out. Um, we have tote bags, we have a mug, we have stickers. And if you're interested in shopping in that, you can again go on our website and check out our shop. And yeah. Um, so I'll see you guys not next Friday. I know, I know. TDS is taking a little bit of a break. And it'll only be momentarily. We'll be back first week of September on the Friday, inshallah. Bin la'i kareem. So I'll see you guys then in your ear, in your speaker, telling you a good story. <laughs>